chance. Maybe it's a church that comes to your mind. There's one down in Peoria uh, by that name, Second Chance Church. Uh, used to be a bar. Uh, now it's a church uh, called Second Chance, right? Um, some neat people down there. Uh, maybe you think of some, someone who is a man or a woman who's been released from prison. They got paroled or they've completed their, their term of their sentence and now they're out. And now that we say they have a second chance to do things right. Or maybe uh, you think in terms of your marriage or of a marriage that you, uh, of some friends or people in your family that you know about. And you know that your marriage or maybe this other group of people's marriage uh, was coming completely unbolted. And then they were able to put it back together, and they have a second chance at happiness and at doing things right and at putting their marriage together in the way that would honor God. Or maybe you think of a movie, probably one of the great second chance movies ever uh, was Field of Dreams. How many of you have seen it? Seen it? Remember? All right. What's the movie about? It's about second chances. It's about a guy who builds a baseball field in the middle of some cornfield in Iowa, which I have been to, by the way, uh, out in Dyersville. You can go. They still have the ball game there. The ball field is still up. You can see the farmhouse. It's kind of a cool thing. Uh, but it's about a second chance, and he builds this ball field, and who shows up? The 1919 Chicago Black Sox baseball team that was banned from baseball for throwing the World Series in a gambling ring, right? They show up, and, and of course, through the course of the movie, he also meets an author who was great in his youth, and then he's kind of become a recluse, and he rediscovers his love for writing, and he gets a second chance at being a great author again. And of course, the best part, the part that all the men love, if you've seen this movie, he has a second chance to play catch with his dad. Remember? We love that, we love that part. We love that movie because it's about second chances. And because we know deep inside of us, even if you're not necessarily somebody who would say that you're a follower of Jesus or a Christian or someone who's religious in any way, there's part of us that intuitively says and intuitively knows that there's something deeply wrong with us as people. And we love second chances because we know that if we're really honest with ourselves, that we all badly, badly need one. If you've been married longer than 10 minutes, you know that at some point you're going to need a second chance, <laughs> right? Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> okay. Um, you, you might need it sooner than you realize, and you're going to probably need more than one second chance. You're going to need like a 250th chance or 2,000th chance and whatever, at least if you're going to stay married, right? Um, we love second chances because second chances 
uh, when they come, are grace breaking through judgment. They're instances where love conquers even the most devastating of sins. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 7 today, where God gives a second chance to humanity. And what we've seen as we've gone through Genesis together is we've seen, the, first of all, the beauty of God's original creation and how everything is harmonious and everything fits and works and nothing is destroyed and wrecked and ruined and marred. And then we've seen all of that stuff take place, all the wrecking and ruining and defacing and marring of everything that God had made beautiful. And so we see marriage that gets corrupted, and it becomes about power and about the satisfaction of someone's desires for power and prestige. And so you go from one man, one woman, one flesh in reflection of the image of the triune God to collecting women with Lamech. And then even being corrupted in the institution, Genesis 6, uh, corrupting the very human race with the coming of the demonic realm into humanity. And everything is getting ruined. Men are building up rebellious civilizations whose entire purpose is to recreate an, an Eden-like society, but apart from God and away from anything having to do with Him. And God, in, as we saw last week in the flood in Genesis 7, destroys all of these people and wipes out all of their sin and all of their nastiness and decides he's going to cleanse the entire earth of everything that has been ruined by all of these nasty, sinful, gross people, except for one little family, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives and enough animals to be able to repopulate the earth from every kind that there is on the planet. And he puts all of them in a boat, and they survive the flood. But the flood is serious, and it covers the entire planet up to 20 feet deep over even the tops of the mountains. How tall were the mountains then? Don't know. What did the geography look like then? Don't know. Was, did the flood take place at the time when all of the continents were together and before there were mountains as tall as the Himalayas? I have no idea. There are some uh, people who actually know about this stuff, uh, geologists and whatnot, that can, can give you some input on that. Um, so how deep is the flood water? Deep enough to drown everything. That deep. But God brings about destruction so that he can, through his grace, start over with humanity. And he's going to start over with Noah and his family. If you've got your Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. 
Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down. And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Now, what you have going on here is... Noah, and there's an error in your notes if you're following along. It should be verses 1 to 5, not verses 1 to 6. Noah has been in this boat, and it rained solid for 40 days, beginning on the 17th day of the second month. And so for five months, they have been in this boat. And there has been flooding. Rained solid for 40 days, then 150 days later, uh, it has stopped raining and the water is starting to recede. But what, you're, what you see here is this. Uh, first in, in the first verse, it says, but God remembered Noah. Now, that word remembered is a little bit weird. Uh, we sang a song with the word remember in it that's based on Scripture in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about God remembering his people Israel or God remembered uh, Noah or God remembered other people. And you, you, if you're just reading that as a person who reads English, what you're, what you're, you might get a little confused about that. What does it mean, remembered? It's not, and what, here's what the Bible is not saying. Let me make this clear. The Bible is not saying, and Noah's floating around in this boat for a while, and, you know, the rain has quit, but there's still, still flooding, and, uh, and God, you know, looked down out of heaven and went, oh, there's a boat. Oh, Noah! Oh, Shazam! I need to get that guy out of there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not like God is just absent-minded, you know, like I am. My wife calls me the absent-minded professor. And that is true. I, get, I go into rooms of the house and don't remember why I'm there. You know, bathroom. Oh, what was I supposed to do in here? Oh, there's the toilet. You know, um, <laughs> I'm supposed to use that. You know, um, I, I, I am absent-minded like that. I don't remember where my wallet is. I can't find my phone about half the time. I have to leave the ringer on so that when Karen calls uh, my phone, we can find it in the house, right? I forget stuff like that. I can remember uh, all kinds of obscure details and whoop you at Trivial Pursuit, but I can't remember where stuff like my wallet would happen to be. But God is not like that. God is not absent-minded. He doesn't forget things. So what does it mean when it says that God remembered Noah? In the, word, in the Old Testament, the word remember is a poetic way of, of speaking that com- combines the idea of faithful love for someone and also acting on their behalf. And so all through the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, you will read people calling out to God to remember your people. Remember we sang that. Remember your people. What we're asking for when you use that language is not for God to uh, call us to mind, because he hasn't forgotten us but to demonstrate his love for us by coming to our aid. 
And so when Moses writes here that God remembered Noah, what he is saying in a poetic way is that God loved Noah and is about to demonstrate his, his love for Noah by acting on his behalf. And what you see described here is really interesting because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what you'll see is a very strong parallel language that's used. If you remember in Genesis 1, what you read is this. Genesis 1, uh, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now you might not know this, but in Hebrew, this is also true in Greek, but in Hebrew, the word for wind and the word for spirit is the same word. In Hebrew, the word is ruach. You get the same thing in the New Testament in Greek. The word for wind and the word for spirit is the same word, pneuma. But what you're, suppo what you're supposed to see is, is this, and it's context and to an extent theology that determines, do I in interpret this wind or do I interpret this spirit? How do I know? Well, context and theology will tell you. But chapter 8, verse 1 my translation reads that God sent a wind over the earth. But you could just as easily translate that and a spirit of God or the spirit of God was sent over the earth. And I don't know which way it's supposed to be translated. I'm not a Bible translator but I know that it can be translated the other way. And the interpreters have made a decision here. And I think what we're supposed to see is we're supposed to see these in parallel because God, through Noah, is recreating the earth. Remember, at the beginning of the creation, the entire earth is covered in water. What's the situation in Genesis chapter 8? The entire earth is covered in water. And God sends either the wind of God, chapter 1, verse 2, or the wind of God, or it could be in both cases the Spirit of God coming. And he is causing the land to appear from out of the water. You're supposed to look at this and go, ah, I remember this language. Covered in water, the Ruach of God comes and makes the land to appear in both places. And note the timeline. The flood starts on the 17th day of the second month. The waters persist for 150 days, which brings us to the 17th day of the seventh month. And by that time, the water has gone down enough for the ark to come to rest on the mountains. Now... It says the mountains of Ararat in my Bible, but the word in Hebrew for mountain and for hill is the same word. So are we way up on the peak or are we down in the foothills? I don't know. The traditional translation is mountains. Uh, where is Ararat? Uh, well, ancient tradition says that Ararat is in modern-day eastern Turkey in the area that used to be called Urartu. Um, in the language of the people of that time. 
Um, we don't know necessarily if that's where it is. It's a good possibility. It's even maybe likely that that's where it is. But we can't prove that. We don't know. Um, but notice, too, that he's talking about that from the perspective of the people in the ark. They're up on top of one of these hills or mountains, and they can look out and they can see other mountaintops from where they are. And they're giving you perspective on what's happening. Uh, and this landing is they're coming to rest. There's new, there's rest from God's judgment. And there's a new beginning and a second chance. Uh, let's, let's read on here. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark and waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the coverings from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. After 10 months, uh, Noah could see the tops of the mountains. And the waters are still receding, and it's a slow process. The rain has quit falling, water levels going down, and Noah waits another 40 days. Now it's midway through the 11th month. He's cut a little window into the ark, which I imagine is for ventilation and getting some fresh air. Because can you imagine what the aroma in that sealed up boat would have been like after this many months. Uh, so he cuts a hole to get some air into there. Some fresh air. I imagine it's stale as can be. And he sends out a raven. And it flies off. And flies back and forth wherever it's going. Because... Of course, when you have eliminated all the animals and people and you sent out a scavenging bird, even stuff that's floating is a place to land. And so the raven doesn't come back. And he waits a little while and he sends out a dove, clean bird, not a scavenger. And it comes back because it's got no place to set down. It can't land on a floating carcass the way that a raven could and would. And so it comes back, and then he sends it out again. 
and this time comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its beak. Guess what? New life is growing. New life is growing. Because olive trees don't grow at high elevation. They grow lower down. And so if you've got olive trees that have got leaves on them, then the water has come down significantly. You can't see. You're up in this boat, way up in the mountains. How far down is the water? I don't know. Let's figure it out. Can you imagine the kind of cabin fever you've got at this point? Noah wants to be safe, though. And he's got, because he's got all of the people that there are with him in this boat. And all of the animals, except for the raven that didn't come back, with him in this boat. He wants to be safe. And so he waits seven more days, and he sends out the dove again, and this time it doesn't return. Why? Because there's some place clean for the dove to land. So on the first day of the new year, Noah takes the covering off of the ark. I don't know exactly what this is referring to, but based on what's described, it it sounds like Noah has taken off part of the upper deck of the ark so that he can get up on deck and get a good view. And he sees that by the 27th day of the second month, just over a year after he went into the ark, the earth is now completely dry and they can come out. And we're going to see God give them the all clear. Let's read on here. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark and your wife, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife, And his son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And I will, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. A year has passed. Noah last heard from God right before he went into the ark. God gave him a command to go in. And then he went in, and God himself shuts up the ark. But Noah has not heard from God since. And he's been in this boat, and all of the animals, and all of the people, and like I say, I imagine it's stale in there, but they survived. And suddenly, after over a year, God speaks again and says, you can come out. Lead out all of the animals. You guys come out. And then he, as they are coming out, the words that God uses are, again, intended to remind 
Noah of Genesis 1 and remind us of Genesis 1. Bring out all kinds of creatures, all the ones that move, all the animals and creatures that move along the ground so that what? So they can multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. That's what God said was supposed to happen in Genesis 1 with not only the animals, but with the people. Remember, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Increase in number on it. And it's a second chance. It's a new opportunity. Can you imagine what it would have been like? Imagine living in a barn with thousands of animals and no way of cleaning up for a year. We used to have a couple of horses. When I was in high school, we had a couple of horses. And you had to go clean up after, after them pretty much every day. And my dad has got a big pack full of dogs. Uh, and you have to clean up after them pretty regularly. And that's just a relatively few animals. And you're with these animals, thousands of them, confined in a boat. Now, I am a land lover. I do like boats particularly the kind you can shoot ducks out of. I like those a lot. I, I like deep sea fishing. I enjoy boats, but I don't want to be on one for a year. I want to have my feet touch the ground regularly. I like that. I would not have been good in the Navy. This would not have been a good thing for me. You know, there's nothing wrong with being on a boat, but I want to touch terra firma regularly. And I, in fact, I like my home environment real well. I don't know about you, but I spent about six weeks in Mozambique as a missionary and visiting theology professor about, about 10 years ago. And when I got home, I literally kissed the ground in Dallas when we touched down. I really did. I was so glad to be home and so glad to have air that didn't smell like burning garbage and that you could breathe. We all on that trip got the most massive sinus infection from all of the garbage fires. They have a gigantic, in the city of Maputo, Mozambique, they have this gigantic, it's like two miles long, probably a quarter mile wide dump. And every night they set the garbage for a city of 2 million people on fire. And if the wind is wrong, it rolls into town, this black, thick, nasty garbage smoke. And so we all, you know, we're all <laughs> hacking and coughing. And it took me a month to just get back to where I wasn't infected and could breathe. And we're subsisting three meals a day, a day on beans, rice, and oatmeal. Oatmeal is breakfast, beans and rice are the other two meals. So I wanted meat. <laughs> I wanted something hot and juicy that had been grilled. I wanted meat. You know, I wanted something tasty to eat, right? Now that is nothing compared to living for a year on a boat. When you get out, I mean, it would have been elbows and heels getting off that thing. Here, we got the door open. 
mean, my kids get excited to go out to the van and get in a tr- get, go on a trip, you know. I got to get in my seat. God says, open the door. You can get out. <laughs> Don't leave me behind. I'm getting out of this thing, right? And everything comes out. Can you imagine what it would be like? When you get out, how grateful you would be that, first of all, you didn't drown in the flood. And second of all, that you were off of this boat. And so when they get out, they give praise to God. God who not only rescued us from the flood, but who saved us and led us out of this thing that was our instrument of salvation. And so they offer sacrifice. Uh, Noah offers sacrifices to God of all, the, of, of all of the clean animals. I think, I think this is the reason why God tells him to take seven of every clean animal and all the clean birds, so that there's one extra one when they get out for sacrifice. And I think that's the one that, that Noah uses to offer sacrifice to God. And by God's grace to Noah... God makes him a promise in response to Noah's sacrifice. Promise that never again, while the earth stands, is God going to stand in judgment against all of its creatures and all of its civilizations and all of the entire planet all at once. Now, there will be a day when God will remake the earth and he will create it anew but there won't be living creatures on it at that point. The world will one day be remade, but God's promise is made not based on humanity's obedience, notice this, but based on God's character. Because he says, even though every inclination of human hearts is evil from childhood, even in spite of that, I'm not going to judge the earth the way I have done here anymore. God is incredibly gracious, and He protects and preserves us even in spite of the fact that we're wicked. A couple closing thoughts here on this passage. Uh, one of the most interesting bits in this story to me is the the bit about the raven and the dove. Both are birds. Both have a lot of the same characteristics. Uh, Both have feathers. They both have beaks. They both have little featherless feet, you know, that can perch on things. They both have a lot of real similar characteristics. But one is a clean bird and the other is not. One is happy to feast on the dead things of the former world, and the other won't do that. One will set its feet wherever it can find a spot to land, and the other will not set its feet down amidst the death and rot of the old world. Instead, it returns to its master, carrying with it a symbol of new life. And it seems to me that people in the world and in the church fit into one of these two categories. 
that either they are content to set their feet and to dip their beak into whatever dead nastiness the world has to offer, or they will fly around, and if there is no place where they can land, they will return to their master. Or when they find a spot to land, they will return to their master carrying new life. Some people really do find new life and rest. And other people never break free from the deadness of the old world they just escaped from. And so when it comes time to offer sacrifice to God, one is clean and acceptable, and the other is not. Let me ask you, are you a raven this morning or a dove? Are you willing to live in and feast on and enjoy all of the dead nastiness the world has to offer? Or are you looking for that which symbolizes new life? and your possession of it. Lots of people, even in the church, have not had their nature changed to make them clean before God. And so while they are both birds, one is content to feast on death, and the other is not. Which one are you? Do you happily stick in your beak death and destruction or do you fill it with new life? And let me say this too. If you're a raven this morning, and some of you might be, I have been. Some of you have been. Let me remind you that God is still the God who, just like with Noah, gives a second chance and a third and a fourth and a fifth to all those who come to him. God offers an opportunity to start again. Remember back in in Genesis 6, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And We saw that the word favor there is the same word for grace. Noah was a sinner, just like everybody else. But God, in his grace, offered him an opportunity to have a new life and to become a righteous person. And so if you're a raven this morning, let me just encourage you. Don't beat yourself up. Don't say, well, I'll never be any different. I'm a horrible person. I'm a nasty sinner. I happily feast on whatever dead thing happens to float by. Recognize that. Acknowledge that before God and cling to his grace and say, God, I am the kind of person that I am, but I am not content to be who I am. Change me. Help me. Help me 
to be transformed from the inside out by faith in your Son, who is the one who came to offer salvation to me. And he offers the same sort of forgiveness to Christian and to non-Christian because Christians can do the same stuff. I have known lots of Christians who come to faith in Jesus Christ who are powerfully changed and who walk in the image of the Son of God, and yet when an opportunity comes along to sin, they sometimes fall right back into feasting on their old dead life. God, who is great in mercy, offers a second chance. And as I said, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and however we need, if we are humble enough to come to Him and say, Father, forgive me. I trust in Your Son. Cleanse me. Make me clean, that the sacrifice I offer might be clean. So that if we find ourselves a million miles away from God, we can still repent and come home. And know that when we come home, that we will be welcomed not with judgment, not with condemnation, but with love and forgiveness and grace sufficient to change us from the inside. Let's pray.